Hello and welcome to another episode of the View From The Lab podcast. I'm your host, Andy Woods. In this episode, I catch up with one of my teaching contacts from the distant past, David Reed. Our paths crossed briefly over a decade ago now, as I replaced him as a chemistry teacher in an 11 to 18 school near Reading. Since leaving his teaching role in secondary schools, David has been focusing his efforts on chemistry education in the early stages of the tertiary sector at the University of Southampton. He is now a professor and is a professional fellow in chemical education, as well as being a director of outreach and a school teacher fellow. In our conversation, I discovered what he learned from his own science education, right up to his current work in supporting students in chemistry at Southampton. David is continuing to experiment with teaching methods today and is always keen to find the best way to engage his students. He has lots of excellent ideas to share with you in this episode. So without further ado, let's hear his view from the lab. Hi David and welcome to the View from the Lab podcast. Welcome. Thanks Andy, great to great to see you in person almost. <laughs> and uh, nice nice to see you and uh, hopefully have a good chat about all things science. I wanted to start off with the um, the kind of beginnings of your kind of passion for science really. I, I know that you've always been um, uh, an advocate for chemistry, been fascinated by chemistry. I just wanted to start off with uh, I asked most of my guests about you know where that science passion came from. Was it something you were just intuitively interested in as a, as a kid, or was it something that was uh, inspired by you know by a good teacher, or was it a book that you read? Can you think back to those early days, maybe even in primary school, that made you really think science is for me? I think it goes back even earlier than that, to be honest. So uh, if if I can sort of have vague recollections of being very young and always asking my dad loads of questions about everything, and he always talks about that. I remember asking him once, what's the difference between petrol and diesel? And and him saying, well, you know, diesel's more expensive than petrol or something like that. <laughs> um, and it was when, then when I got to secondary school and started studying chemistry, I realised that chemistry was a subject that had the answer to all of those questions. So, um, you know, thinking about the, the very first stuff that I did, we did the, uh, the, the sort of distillation of crude oil very early on in my time at secondary school. And suddenly I knew what the difference between petrol and diesel was. And I just realised that, that chemistry had the answers to all of those questions I'd been asking. So obviously there, there was other stuff in between times. Science was always something which I was interested in. You might be too young to remember Tomorrow's World. Do you remember that? I do remember Tomorrow's World. I am just about old enough. Yeah, good old uh, Tomorrow's World, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I used to watch that with my dad, and, and that was always fun and interesting, but I don't recall there ever being very much chemistry in it. It was probably more physics and technology and maths and that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, as soon as I started doing chemistry at secondary school, when I realised what chemistry actually was, that was when I was hooked, um, and that didn't really change. I did have some brilliant teachers, there's no question about it. Um, I wouldn't say that any of them were sort of massively inspirational in, in the traditional sense, but they were all good teachers. I think I was very lucky in that regard, because we know that you know, there are some people who struggle to teach chemistry. We, we, we often have non-specialist teachers teaching, just as I struggle to teach physics. Um, you know, I, I think that that is one of the big problems that we have, that not everybody has the opportunity to learn from someone who's really confident in the subject. Um, and I think that's something we have to carry on working on in the future. Uh, but yeah, one, once I was hooked, that was it. I was, I was a chemist for life, I guess. You were away, and what was it? What was your school like? Because you, you kind of, um, you were based when you were younger. You were down in the southwest, weren't you? What was your school like? Was it like a, was it comprehensive? Was it selective? What was the, what was the um, school like that you, you did that main eleven to eighteen work with? 
So yeah, I went to a a, a traditional grammar school. So I did the what was the twelve plus actually because we, we we lived in Buckinghamshire at that point, and I did did do a year in a grammar school in High Wycombe before we moved down to Devon, and then I went went to Torquay Boys Grammar. Um, and again, so I was very lucky to be in a well-resourced school, which, uh, you know, the teachers cared about their subjects and, you know, they gave us a fantastic grounding in, in all of the subjects. I, I don't mean this in a critical way. It was a very traditional kind of education. Uh, we would often be copying stuff off the board and answering questions out of the textbook. And, you know, we were hardworking generally and got on with stuff. Um, and, you know, I think that, that you know, that's not to criticise it in any way. It obviously worked for me. Um, but uh, I'll come back to this later on when I went to teach in a comprehensive school and saw the type of teaching that was going on there, where some of my colleagues were teaching low, lower set kids and making immense progress with them. I saw a whole different style of teaching to that that I'd experienced myself. Uh, but no, I mean, looking back, you know, I think the, the wooden benches in the chemistry labs and that smell that you get, it's very evocative. If I walk into an old lab, it takes me back to school and I only have you know, fond memories of it, to be fair. Um, and as I say, I mean, I had some great teachers. So uh, I think the, the thing that stands out, of course, was all the practical work that we did. Virtually every lesson had a practical of some kind in it. And I think it's always a shame when I speak to kids now who say they, they maybe do one or two practicals a term. I think that would have made a huge difference to me. That, that might actually have put me off. I used to really love getting my hands dirty um, and you know, setting fire to stuff. That's, isn't that what we do as chemists? And do you think... Um... Do you think there's a reason behind that there's less less practical work possibly, or is there any particular? Obviously, those changes that have happened possibly you've observed that. Is there anything that maybe is driving that? Do you think? Well, I think it does vary. Um, so I think that today there are schools and state schools that do fantastic work with uh, in the practical sphere. Uh, but having said that, there are also schools where they haven't had the resources perhaps over the years. They haven't had the technicians who've been able to repair equipment. Um, they haven't had the budget to replace stuff that's broken. It's easy for things to decline over a period of time. And, and because it gets difficult for the teachers, then if, if you haven't got the kit, you need to do the practical. You don't do the practical and then it just disappears from your practice. So you can see how over a period of time, uh, it could be that in a particular school that there is a decline in the amount of practical work that's done. I do worry a little bit at the moment with what's going on with the pandemic, that you know, lots of kids are in rooms where they can't do practical work, not, they've not been able to move around. And you know, you, once these issues set in, it's very hard to reverse that trend. Uh, so I, th I think that's just you know, symptomatic of the same kind of problem. I do think also it's expensive, practical work. Uh, if a head teacher is trying to save a bit of money here and there, uh, trimming the science budget a little bit can be uh, quite an attractive prospect, I guess. So I think there are a whole range of issues that affect it. I also think actually that having a good experience when you're training to teach, being able to do practical work, learning from an expert, someone who's done practical work for years, which I did, and you know the people who were mentoring and training me, um, you know, there were some brilliant teachers at, at Theo Green where I trained. So I, I learned how to do practical work very early on. I'm speaking to trainees at the moment who have not done any practical work during the course of their PGCE this year because of the pandemic. So how will they be confident to go into a classroom in future years and, and teach bottom set year 10 um, with Bunsen burners? You know, you, you need to develop that confidence and the skill to do it. So, um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a complex one. And is there equipment I'm thinking about when you go to maybe not sick form, perhaps, but maybe I guess you visit 1116 schools as well. And obviously, you, you know, you know what, you know, what 1116 schools are like as well. And that, that 
that um, that age group. Is there any bits of equipment you think you were sometimes surprised that some schools don't have that would really be useful for kind of uh, school practicals in terms of you know not necessarily expensive stuff, but what are the things that really you sometimes you're surprised that you haven't they haven't got any of this or haven't got any of that? Is there any things that that you you spot during your visits around schools? Well, I mean, to be fair, I've, I've not spent as much time in schools in recent years as I did in the early part of my time at Southampton. Um, in terms of chemistry, I guess, you know, you, you need to have a class set of burettes because everyone's got to do titrations. But, you know, if they get broken, they don't get fixed. And although I always used to tell my students, oh, don't break the burettes, you know, they're really, really expensive. Actually, they're not that expensive. But if you do break a few of them, they, they don't get replaced. Um, distillation kit. I mean, you know how you used to demo a distillation to show separation of, of liquids or separation of a liquid from a solid, whatever it is that you're doing. Um, I've been to schools where they've not got the kit to do a distillation and they're showing videos. And again, I mean, that's another issue, perhaps, that, that if you've got a video where you can show it and the video zooms in and, sh and then shows you a particle animation and shows you what's going on, you might think, well, what's the point of doing the practical? And then that kit might not be replaced. So um, to go back to your question, I get other things that are really useful and important, like your balance for weighing out substances. You'd be amazed how our students struggle to weigh substances because they never used a balance before when they arrive at uni. Mm. Um, melting points. I mean, I, I guess you don't tend to use those so much at GCSE. It's more an A-level thing. But, you know, most kids haven't seen a melting point apparatus before. And, you know, these are the sorts of things that would have been commonplace in any school, perhaps back when... I was a nipper, which is going back quite a long time now. Um, but I guess it's like I say, it's a slow degradation because the budget hasn't been there to replace things as they wear out. That actually, you're seeing reduction in the kit that's there. And the worst thing is going into a school and walking into the prep room and seeing loads of old pieces of kit that clearly don't work or are broken, and they're just sitting there and nothing's being done about it. It must be really demoralising for the teachers and the technicians. I would have thought. Yeah, I thought you were going to say then that you go into prep room and there are there are no technicians there, and I suspect that is sometimes the case in some in some schools because I know it's hard to, in my time, it's hard to get good technicians as well. Um, for you know to support those science teachers, there's a kind of a whole a whole conversation around that, I guess, as well. Um, I was thinking about your uh, move from so you're obviously clearly passionate about chemistry. It made sense, obviously, you did a, did a a chemistry degree, um, and then you went on to research. What made you think? Um, I've had not had enough of chemistry. I want to do a bit more. What, what made you think? Oh, definitely, I, I want to spend a bit more time on chemistry. What was it again? Was it a lecturer, or was it um, just a particular area of science that you wanted to really find a bit more about? Well, so I guess I, I, I'll start by addressing a couple of uh, points which probably don't reflect very well on me. Um, but but actually, thinking about when I was in my second year, I was actually supposed to be organising a placement. I was going to do a, an industrial placement as part of my degree. And one way or another, I, I guess I wasn't proactive enough to get things up and running with that. And I, I kind of decided, no, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do a placement. But what I did do was then a placement for eight weeks at the end of my second year. I thought I'll do that instead. Rather than spending a year in industry, I'll do eight weeks in the summer, see how that goes. And I went to work for SmithKline Beecham before they merged with Glaxo in Harlow. And it, it was good. I mean, it was a good experience in the lab. I worked with some great people, but it just didn't click for me. I think I, I realized at that point, industry is not going to be for me. So as I entered my final year, that door had closed. 
Um, and then I hadn't really thought very much about careers. You know, I've, I've never I've never been the kind of person who could answer the question, where do you see yourself in 10 years time? I'd rather just go along for the ride. So I guess I didn't really have much else, uh, many other options I could have gone for. That's one way of thinking of it. Another thing is that I'd actually just started playing in a band. In my second year, I'd, I'd finally gotten around to picking up the bass guitar. I always had this inclination I'd be a bass player one day. Um, so I started playing the bass, played in a band, had a great time and thought, you know what, I'd like to carry on doing this for a few more years. Um, and I knew doing a PhD would let me do that. So, you know, those things were factors in my decision. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I also had been thinking about going into teaching at that point and was looking at a PGCE as an option. But I think I realised that at 21, not very worldly wise, I probably was a bit too wet behind the ears to deal with the challenges of the classroom. So thankfully, I think it was the right decision. I didn't go down that route. And um, well, when it came to the PhD, I'd been offered the opportunity to stay on to do a PhD. And I had some very sage advice from an academic who I respected a great deal, Tim Gallagher, actually, who's still at Bristol now. Um, and I'd been thinking that I might go and do a pharmacology PhD because I thought, well, then maybe there'll be a career at the end of that. And he said, you should think about doing a PhD with Roger, Roger Alder. He was the guy I was doing my third year project with. And he said, you know, he's doing unique stuff. There's no one else in the world doing the things that Roger is doing. And this is a great opportunity for you to do something. You'll really enjoy it. He was right. I'd listened to that. I thought, OK, I'll take your word for it. And it was brilliant. You know, I mean, I look back now very fondly on what I did. And if there were such a thing as a Guinness Book of Chemistry records, I would have had two entries. Um, we made the strongest trialkyl phosphine base that's uh, ever existed, as far as I'm aware. And we also measured the lowest ever inversion barrier for a trialkyl phosphine. Um, now, actually, I don't know if we hold those records still or not, but even so, it's something I like to brag about, not that it means anything to anybody else. Uh, but, you know, it became a way of life. It wasn't a job. Sometimes I look at PhD students now and I think they're, they're here nine to five. And if it gets to 4.30 and, and there's a reaction to do, they'll leave it till tomorrow. That wasn't how we operated. We stuck around till the job was done. We worked hard and we played hard. It was a great time in my life and I'm really glad that I did it. But I guess the reasons for doing it in the first place aren't necessarily the best reasons. Right, obviously some good, good advice in, in retrospect though. So um, talk about teaching now, because I mean, our, our paths crossed as you were going out of teaching really in terms of secondary schools. But um, again, you said you talked about teaching. You said, well, it's definitely something you wanted to try. Um, and then I guess from Bristol, did you train in Bristol and then just go out into the world of teaching? What was your next step? Well, actually, when I finished my PhD, I went over to the States for a couple of years uh, to do further research. So postdoctoral research, as they call it. And again, you know, the, the reasons for doing it weren't necessarily the right reasons, but it was still a great adventure. You know, going, I lived in St. Louis for two years. I, I, got, I went to watch baseball. I got into the football, had a brilliant time, met loads of amazing people. Didn't have such a great time in the lab, to be honest, but you know, still made some progress, got on very well with my supervisor and met some amazing Chinese guys that I worked with. And there's a whole other story there, which we won't go into today. Um, but anyway, wh when I came back two years later, um, I can kind of remember sort of thinking, well, hang on, what am I actually going to do now? Right? I've got a PhD, I've got a good degree, I've done a postdoc. I don't want to work in industry. Actually, I don't want to do research anymore. So what the hell am I going to do? Now, I always knew, as I said, teaching was going to be a pathway. Actually, what I didn't say, when I left school and went to Bristol, I actually went back for speech day uh, to pick up a prize. I got the chemistry prize. 
only because the other guys that were better at chemistry than me actually got prizes in other subjects. So it kind of trickled <laughs> down to me, right? Um, but anyway, uh, I went back and when I walked into speech day and looked at my teachers, I just had this feeling that, you know what, I wouldn't mind being a teacher. I'd never even thought it before that point. So I guess from that point forward, I knew it was going to come along at some point. Um, anyway, so after I'd finished my postdoc back in the UK, looking around, thinking, what am I going to do? I actually applied for a job at Porton Down um, and thought, right, this is my last chance saloon. If I don't get this job, I'm going into teaching. And I got a letter back saying, sorry, you know, we're not even inviting you for interview. It was only later on I found out that if you'd been out of the country for a prolonged period uh, before you applied for a job at Port and Down, they would never consider you for the role because you might have been indoctrinated by some foreign power to go in and, and be yeah, some kind of dodgy character in, in, in uh, one of the government institutes. So anyway, I, I, my decision to go into teaching was strongly influenced by that. Um, and, you know, it was it was like, OK, I'm going to go and do it. I, I know I'm going to be a teacher one day. Why not do it now? Um, and well, I, there's a bit more to it than that. But I won't bore you with all the details. I, I found myself at Thiel on the graduate teacher program. That's Thiel Green Community School, as it was at the time, um, and was very fortunate to land in a department full of supportive people, had a brilliant mentor. And, uh, you know, there were ups and downs. There really were. I mean, it was tough. Uh, you know yourself, you've been there. Um, and, you know, after six weeks of my training, I almost, you know, dropped out. I actually went walkabout for a few days. But fortunately, because they're such a good department, they, they brought me back in, got me back on my feet, got me back on track. And, uh, yeah, and I guess I survived. I know. And uh, did you learn, because you, you were there for a significant amount of time there, weren't you? I think, was it five, six years you were at Thiel? It felt like it. It was <laughs> actually, <laughs> um, I think I first started my training in September 2003 although I didn't actually start actually working in the school until January 2004 so actually it was only three and a half years because I, a certain uh, a certain other teacher came in and replaced me when I left uh, which of course was yourself right so uh, for anyone listening um, you know well, we'll say a bit more about it. I've got a little story for you a bit later on that you don't know about and I'll slip that into a response later on okay <laughs> so I can cut out later Dave it's fine um <laughs> so you so you're teaching for a bit so obviously when you moved to this uh to university of southampton where you've, you've been for a while now um again what what, what occurred uh, there were you looking for something different that the teaching wasn't giving you we we're just thinking i want to take my teaching career in a different direction um how did that opportunity arise or was it something you were just literally looking for and that opportunity came up well, yeah, I mean, it, it was the right job at the right time. So again, I mean, as always with these things, there's a story there. So if I think back to when I first walked into Thiel, uh, of course, the first thing you do is you observe other teachers. And I was stunned by the amazing teaching that I saw, because it was so different from that experience that I've described already that I had in my traditional boys grammar school. I saw, you know, proper active learning, the teachers teaching a bottom set year 10 and a really we're talking about kids who were they were lovely kids some of the nicest kids I met in the school but really struggling you know with, with lots of um, you know special education needs lots of TAs present and the teaching was absolutely phenomenal and these kids were walking out of that room knowing some science which they would not have known before and they and certainly if they'd been at my school they wouldn't have learned anything so you know I saw some amazing teaching and I thought I honestly thought this I thought wow if any universities knew about the sort of teaching that's going on at school, 
you know, because again, I thought about sitting in lectures and copying down 20 sides of A4 notes. There's no learning involved in that. And having seen the teaching that was going on at a comprehensive school, I suddenly understood the difference that good teaching could make. So that thought was there that universities need to know about this stuff. I was also aware that Bristol has a role called a school teacher fellow, that a fantastic guy, Tim Harrison, who's still there now. He's now a good friend of mine. But because I studied at Bristol, I was aware of his role and was very jealous that this guy who'd been a school teacher was now working in a university, going out, talking to kids in schools, blowing stuff up and getting paid for doing it. And I was like, wow, I want a job like that. <laughs> so then when this job came up, you know, this was only, as I said, three and a half years into my time, really, or three years into my time as, of, as, of teaching. Um, it just seemed like it had my name on it. Um, you know, it was another school teacher fellow role. And uh, they were looking for someone to support kids in the transition to university. And that really chimed with me because when I first went to university, I don't know about you, but I felt completely out of my depth. I remember going into the lab and them talking about this stuff called acetone that we used to wash all our glassware in and thinking, what the hell's acetone? And looking around and thinking, everybody else knows what acetone is. I'm the only idiot that doesn't. Of course, I later found out no one knew what the hell acetone was because that was the old name. It's actually called propanone. And that's what most people now call it. I, it, I didn't even know that until probably I was in my third year. Um, so the whole experience of the transition was very difficult for me. Again, I nearly dropped out after six weeks, nearly switched to psychology, bizarrely. Um, no idea why, but you know, it almost happened. Um, and you know, that really chimed with me. Actually taking the opportunity to be able to go and support kids in making that difficult transition felt like something I'd want to do. And of course, the other thing they were looking for was someone who had a bit of experience with learning technology. Um, and they were particularly keen on developing their use of their virtual learning environment. I don't know if you remember a chap called Francis Cubitt at Thiel, who was a brilliant economics teacher. He'd actually got me involved in the VLE at Thiel, and it was something I spoke about in my interview. And I think that's what got me the job. Um, there were other teachers that had applied for that job who had much more experience than me. But the fact that I'd been working with learning technology already and, and could tell them about successes that I'd had, I think probably swung it. So yeah, it was the right job at the right time. It wasn't that I was looking to leave. Um, as you also know, I'd only just become a dad and, uh, you know, the, having a, a new job to go to with a quite a long commute wouldn't have been something I necessarily would have chosen, I think. But you know, it felt like the right thing. And clearly it has been. You know, I've thoroughly enjoyed the role. Those, uh, in, in a sense, those virtual learning environments are kind of um, obviously uh, come back to, uh, up to the pandemic. You know, obviously we're, we're just rely, relying on those uh, that type of technology now. So it's kind of it's come on a, obviously a long way since those days. Um, thinking about so the main thrust of this um, interview, I wanted to ask you about uh, transition because often in schools, often we talk about key stage two to key stage three transition, key stage three to key stage four, key stage four to key stage five. But as as a former school teacher myself, we don't hear much about that transition from um, you know sick form uh, science to you know those, those first couple of years, first year definitely of uh, chemistry or, or, or science degrees, and you know obviously you know a lot about that. I mean, what have you found over the years to be familiar patterns? Because you're at a very well-known Russell Group University. I guess you've got some very highly capable candidates that come through your doors every autumn. But are there things that they still find difficult with? What are the common things that you often see year after year that students, even despite perhaps maybe really good A-level grades, they're still finding it hard to get to grips with at the beginning of their course? Anything that sticks out for you? 
Well, first of all, there there are two sides to this transition, right? There, there's there's there are, there's the kids and their capabilities and their knowledge and skills, and then there's the teaching and the academics and the way they deliver what they're delivering, and and both of those need to be addressed. And actually, a big part of what I was doing early on was working with the academics. Um, yeah, you're not going to move away from lectures anytime soon, but you can you can make that lecture a bit less didactic. You can make it interactive. I think we'll probably come back and touch on the learning technology stuff again a bit later on. But that was a big part of that. I guess what I what I realized was missing when I first went to observe a lecture was there was a lack of dialogue. And I'd forgotten how important that was or how how much that was missing, I guess, because in school, it's just you have that dialogue. It's very difficult when you're teaching a class of 34, which we were sometimes with top sets. How do you have a dialogue with every individual kid? That's really important, but very difficult to do. But how do you do it in a lecture theater with 150 kids and you're only seeing them once or twice a week? You know, I mean, it's a completely different type of teaching. So I guess thinking where the kids were coming from, how do you go from having an Ofsted ready lesson where your stuff is being delivered? You're not doing one thing for more than 15 or 20 minutes. You're being told the learning outcomes or learning objectives as they were at the time or success criteria, all these things. You're being told that it's being recapped. The teacher's constantly working to make sure you've achieved that learning outcome. And then you go to uni, someone dumps a load of stuff on you and, and leaves the room and that's it. And you've then got to assimilate that and find the best way of working with it. That's where the biggest gap is. Uh, the students haven't got the independent learning skills that the academics assume they have already. So anything that we can do to improve those independent learning skills is really important. Um, and I think that's something which is variable from school to school, from college to college. And I guess that is the big challenge that when you have a cohort arriving at university, just because they've got good grades actually doesn't necessarily tell you much because and I'm not being stereotypical here, although I guess I am, but they might have gone to an independent school where they were drilled really well in getting good grades and they got good grades. And they might have gone to a different type of school where they had very little support and they worked really, really hard to get BBB. Actually, that kid that worked really, really hard to get BBB and was quite independent might do better in their first year at university than the kid that was drilled really effectively and had loads of support from their teacher. So, you know, there are, it's a very complex thing. Obviously, there are patterns, but every individual is different. Um, and I do think the, the thing that can make the biggest difference, really, is, is that level of the skill to be an independent learner, to know where the gaps are yourself, to know what strategies you can use to be able to fill those gaps. And the thing is, you know, good teachers will be teaching the kids to do that independently, but there are other good teachers who are doing it very effectively, but not necessarily preparing the kids to do it themselves, that they're doing it for the students. Um, so you know, I think making sure that any kid going into A-level appreciates that actually part of what you're doing here is learning how to be an independent learner. So over these two years, you're going to get to that point where you can go to university and access the material and, and do well in a setting where it's not the academics don't care. It's just it's a completely different type of teaching and it's not teaching as you and I know it. I mean, it's uh, I must say when I started lecturing, which I didn't really do till 2012, I absolutely hated it because it wasn't my style of teaching. I like really interactive, you know, engaging um, teaching with the kids, give them something to do, help them to work through it. And I've managed to adapt my lectures to be able to do that. But when I tried to lecture the way they did, I hated it. 
Um, but you know, I've kind of meandered a little bit there. But just to go back to say that that you know, the, the key thing is that, that good grades are not necessarily a predictor of success at university. It's it's about your ability to apply yourself and and to to take the lead and be proactive. I think. Yeah, I was thinking about um, when you left when you left uh, your secondary school teaching. You were you're very much into feedback and electronic feedback about what was going on in the lesson, uh, how your students were, were responding. I know that obviously technology has moved on since uh, I saw you using that technology, um, and most of it I assume is app based and mobile phone based in terms of feedback. Um, in your kind of lectures, do you have um, feedback? quite regularly i you asking questions to your class are they responding in that way because i heard the other day that the way to accelerate learning is to increase the level of feedback after every action uh, so obviously people don't get misconceptions and you, you can make mistakes and you can learn from your mistakes obviously leaving things too long to the end of the lecture and you realize that the per- person doesn't know what acetone is <laughs> and so i've got no idea what the context is for example um so in terms of your lectures or lectures generally down in southampton do you have um, particular points where you would be asking questions to the, uh, the, the, you know, the students or is it particular to you'd be and, and maybe another lecturer would not ask any questions? Is there a particular way it's structured down in Southampton where you can get more feedback? Is that something that they, they put in the statute uh, in terms of what they expect when, when teaching happens, for example? Well, I mean, that, that was one of the things that I worked on very early on. So the introduction of the in-class response systems. And we used to use these radio frequency handsets that we'd have to hand out and take back in. They're a r- real pain, actually, on reflection now, although I loved them at the time. Um, yeah, it's all app-based on the phone now, so there's no excuse for not using it. Um, I do try to intersperse the questions throughout my lectures, um, and I encourage my colleagues to do the same, and a lot of them do. Others prefer the old-fashioned way, to pose questions verbally. Of course, the, the only slight issue there is that, that you tend to get the same students responding. And you know, I was watching a, a brilliant uh, webinar by Tom Sherrington the other day. I still, I'm very interested in what's going on in schools. And I think that, as I said earlier, universities can learn a hell of a lot from schools. And I still learn a lot from people like that. He was talking about Rosenshine's principles and how to apply them in online learning. Uh, and the importance of questioning and, you know, and all of that. So it, it, we are trying to do all of that and I'm trying to get people doing it here. Um, but he was talking about cold calling where you actually would just pick people and just they expect that they could be asked a question at any time in that lesson. And it keeps them on their toes. That doesn't happen in lectures. I've tried doing it and it doesn't go down well. <laughs> Students don't like it. And because my colleagues don't do it. Um, you know, the, that expectation isn't there. So I think that's one of the things that we lose a little bit. If, if you are the only teacher of your class, your way goes and they have to get used to it. Um, and it's much more difficult at university. So the ele- electronic voting gives us a get out, really. You don't put people on the spot. It's anonymous. If they get it wrong, they get it wrong. It's not the end of the world. I'll tell you what's been quite interesting, doing running sessions um, online, because actually we found students have been quite keen to use the chat. So get lots of responses in the chat um you know if, also people asking questions via the chat when they wouldn't necessarily put their hand up and ask a question in class so i definitely think there's merit in using the technology it does open the door to people who might not otherwise participate but i think i have to be honest and say the participation is by no means universal there are still a lot of students sitting there hiding um and even when we use the response systems um, you know you don't get if you've got 35 kids in front of you, you don't get 35 responses. I think some of them are worried that you're watching what they're doing. 
So that is another issue. So I think, you know, again, it goes back to that point about being proactive and taking advantage of all opportunities. If a student goes to university and decides they don't want to really engage, they can get away with it until they start failing. No one's going to really pick up on them. Whereas if you're a school teacher, if you've got a kid who's not engaging, you pick them up after a couple of lessons and you start leaning on them a little bit, right? But that doesn't happen so much at university level. So I think we, we need to find as many different approaches as we can to, to get them engaged and get them thinking and actually convince them that, yeah, you do need to take ownership of your learning now because we're, we're not going to just guide you through it. You're going to have to do it yourself. It's almost as if you, um, it would be a great hybrid in terms of someone had a lecture, it was almost you had some kind of chat function that you could have in front of you on your le- on your lectern um, where people were asking you questions. Because I think the key thing is, you know, they have to be anonymous because no one wants to be called out, whether it's in a, an adult meeting or a, or a student lecture for bit for asking you know a, a stupid question in inverted commas um so i think that's uh yeah the more that anonymity i suppose is, is encouraged in a sense so people can not not be embarrassed about about learning in front of their, their peers that that's a kind of a something we could definitely push for i think i mean in terms of um uh, the kind of way that edu- obviously ideas shift, uh, shifting sounds in education always. What do you think about um, uh, the, the kind of slight move towards direct instruction in schools more than ever used to be and away from flipped learning a little bit, I would say, um, in terms of what people are saying, in terms of evidence-based teaching. Um, obviously, within uh, kind of obviously universities, they're very probably into direct instruction Um but how do you, is there a good balance between those two you think could be um, uh, reached? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. And, you know, I, I'm, as you know, I'm a, an advocate for flipped learning. Actually, what, what I do is what I call partial flipping, where partly because, as I mentioned, I hated my lectures when I first started giving them. So I started recording like 15 minute videos putting them online and that freed up 15 minutes for proper interactive teaching for my kind of teaching and it and it's been a success and it's been something I've been promoting a lot over the last few years um, but at the same time if you watch one of my flipped learning videos it's direct instruction right it's I'm telling them stuff and I am also working through problems and modeling things and you know but that's what the guys that are doing direct instruction do if you direct instruction done well as long as it's backed up by other effective strategies to make sure the students are engaged in that learning, then it can obviously be effective. People are having success with it. It's not the same direct instruction I had at school where we copied off the board. Uh, we'll tell you this and you'll know it kind of approach, and, and which is very much the case in university or was in my day, less so now. I mean, there is more engagement now. Um, but yeah, I mean, flip learning is not a panacea. So my motivation for bringing in flipped learning was to free up time for other strategies. So if teachers are using direct instruction and they're then using other approaches, like I know it's probably old hat, uh, but retrieval practice, that kind of thing, where you're actually finding ways to make sure the students are getting deeper long term learning through what you're doing then all power to you. I mean, let's let's learn from what are the most effective approaches. If people are doing this and getting evidence that it works well, I'm all in favour of it, as long as the kids are able to do the chemistry at the end of it, right? That's that's the big challenge. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm open-minded. I'm ready to see what other people are doing and to learn from it. But um, I do think there's a balance. I think the part of the reason why flipped learning is important is that you're giving the students something to study in their own time 
that's part of the way of, of helping them to learn how to be independent going forwards. They've got to manage that time. They've got to find their own way through that material. Um, just watching videos maybe isn't enough. Getting them to do some reading. I think that's, <laughs> I see lots of evidence of students in their final year struggling to do much reading when they've got to write a dissertation and do some research to underpin it. So that we need to do these things to help build those skills for the students. But at the end of the day, if you're able to get the students to meet the learning outcomes and have a genuine deep understanding, then use whatever approach works for you and tell me about it. And um, we're kind of coming, I'm reporting this on uh, June, June 2021. Um, in theory, uh, we're coming to a possible end to um, restrictions due to the pandemic. We'll see what the next few weeks bring. Um, but in terms of the, obviously everyone's been disrupted in some way in terms of their their jobs or uh, what what they're doing day to day. Is there any anything that you have learned from the disruption that you think I, I'm I'm going to keep that? I'm going to keep some of the good things of the pandemic in terms of the way I'm delivering uh, my curriculum, but I'm definitely going to look forward to um, rejoining the, these aspects of the of the curriculum or doing these things. What are the things you'd keep that you maybe didn't think you would want? to keep uh, before you know this disruption happened well it's, it's interesting because I've, 10 years ago I could show you a slide I made 10 years ago which the middle of the slide says if it can go online it should go online and I'd put all this stuff around the slide all the things that we were doing at university level that should be online and one of the things was lectures so I've been saying for years that all lectures should be online let's go fully flipped and one of my modules is fully flipped and I always get good feedback on it as I say though my main approach is partial flipping however it's been a revelation to put all lectures online and and actually colleagues who previously would have said no there's no way we're doing that haven't had a choice we've had to do it and so thinking about anecdotal conversations with my colleagues a lot of them are saying oh this is this is working pretty well these online lectures um, oh, maybe David was right after all. After all. Um, so, you know, I don't know whether that will stay. We'll have to see. There is another slight issue with that, which is actually the students being able to manage their time. It goes back to what I was saying earlier. So I did a bit of an evaluation of this and found the students that responded to my survey, which was about half the cohort, were largely in favour of online lectures and thought it should carry on and gave me all these reasons why it worked, because they can pause the video and reflect on it. They can plan their own time. They can augment their notes and be better organized. We put quiz questions in the video so they can test their knowledge as they go along and they like that. We've got the video of me with all my molly mods waving things at the camera. Um, you know, all those things were commented on favorably. But the other half of the students didn't respond. That was probably because they didn't even get around to watching the lectures, right? So when we were t lecturing in person, they used to turn up. Now, whether they were there in, in mind and body, I don't know, but at least they were there right and hopefully yeah. something was going in i think as school teachers we know a one-hour lecture where you're bombarding them with content upon content if there's one thing they don't understand what is the point of even carrying on yeah because they're not going to understand the rest of the lecture and that's been another thing that they've said is a benefit here but unfortunately i fear that we probably will end up going back to, to normal lectures again because actually some students quite like to just sit there and listen for an hour Right. Whereas when they've got to watch a video and manage it themselves, that, that's a bit more hassle. So, I, you know, I'd love to keep it whether we will or not. Time will tell. Now, some universities have already said that for the next academic year, they will be doing lectures online. Um, so we'll have to see. And with the variants that are emerging at the time that we're speaking, we just don't know where we're going to be in September. So we'll have to see. But another thing that has been a real revelation this year has been using breakout rooms. 
Now, I've, what I've done, I've had a cohort of about 38, actually, not too big. So I've created these shared PowerPoint files um, where we put them in groups of four. The PowerPoint has an activity on it, which might be like a drag and drop or something we would have used as a card sort previously, where the boxes are on the screen and they've got to drag stuff around, put them in order. So they, they go to a breakout room, they have a conversation, they do the chemistry activity on screen. Myself and my demonstrator can, can watch them, what they're doing in the PowerPoints. We can see when they're making mistakes. I've got my pen, right? And I'm writing on my screen, putting a cross next to the thing they've got wrong. And then you can see them correct it on screen in front of your eyes. So we're not actually going into the breakout rooms. We're just watching what they're doing in these uh, shared PowerPoint files. So that's been an absolute revelation. I've loved doing that. It's been brilliant. However, it's been the best of a bad job. Um, some students don't engage in breakout rooms. That will be a common experience. Anyone who's used them will know that, right? Um, so it's been brilliant for those that did engage, but it's probably been terrible for those that didn't. Um, so again, whether or not we'll carry on doing that kind of stuff, I don't know. I personally would like to retain a, a, at least one two-hour slot per week with my students online, because I think we can do these group activities better in that way than we can when we're in person in a lecture theatre. Try, try and have a discussion between four people in a tiered lecture theatre. It's impossible, mm, yeah. but you can do it in a breakout room. So, you know, I'm, I'm definitely going to be exploring ways of taking this stuff forward. I've, I've been training people in the university on doing these things um, and I'm hoping that there'll be other people doing it too because if you're a lone wolf doing it you're the outlier and you, know, you end up being the one the students don't like because you're the one that does it differently so you know I need to get more people on board if I'm going to keep this stuff going. It's interesting you say I was quite surprised actually you said that um, you said that in terms of percentage of or numbers of students coming to lectures in person it was higher than online is that correct is that correct? Well, so we don't know for sure. So actually, if we look at the stats, um, yeah, so I'd say there are more students who haven't watched lectures online than would not turn up to a lecture, okay. right? However, does that mean that when they're sitting there and you can see their eyes are glazed over as you're giving the lecture, yeah. I mean, is there any benefit in them being there, right? You know, <laughs> um, But yeah, I mean, it's hard to know because some students have told us oh yeah I know that it doesn't show you that I viewed this but I was around at my friend's house watching it in their room or you know we don't really know how many students have watched the lectures because the stats aren't giving us the full picture. And obviously with your subject it's a practical subject but do do students feel that in a sense now you know tuition fees um, for you know higher education do they feel that they um, want to do those in, those live lectures because of because of that and feels like online's like a um, inferior version of of the uh, the content. Is is there a feeling like that? I think there is definitely a feeling like that. Okay. Um, I would also say not all online lectures are the same, and yeah. I do think that be not because I'm a better teacher, but because I have read a lot more literature and I've been thinking about this stuff for a long time. I think that I probably didn't do a bad job with my online lectures right so when I evaluated them I got positive feedback because you know I think we did a decent job me and my colleagues on the foundation yeah plus we're very teaching focused people you know it's what we do it's our job um, a lot of my colleagues this is not a criticism at all but they are researchers right and, and they teach as part of their role but research is what got them where they are so that's their main focus quite justifiably so um, so I'm not saying they did a bad job some of them have done an absolutely fantastic job with their lectures but the quality is variable. Um, some students have complained about audio quality and that kind of thing. All you need is one bad experience 
And then for someone to start moaning about it and other people saying, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I agree with you. No, that, that, that wasn't very good. And, and suddenly it becomes the, the thing. There's like a wave of negative opinion there. And I do think you're right that actually I think some student unions in some universities have been getting petitions together saying we don't want online lectures. And it isn't just about the learning. It's about the community. It's about the getting to know your peers, getting to know your lecturers, you know, and, and you, you cannot be part of a community online. It doesn't work. And I think that's what these young people are telling us now. It hasn't worked for them. So it's getting the balance right. Um, if, if the pedagogy is better, then let's do it online. And then let's find ways of building our community around that. Um, but you can't neglect the community. If you take away the community, you take away the purpose of the university, they might as well study with the, you know, the Open University or, or University of Phoenix or one of these online providers uh, and not pay nine and a half grand a year for it. Yeah, of course. Um, in chemistry, you know, your subject, I read recently that there's a declining interest in studying chemistry as a standalone subject. I know that at A-level, it's still very strong. It's still got a lot of people studying it, but people are not choosing um, it as a, a single subject. I mean, that might change, I guess. I don't know, in terms of the pandemic, there is a lot of more interest in science a little bit, I'd say. So I mean, we may get an uptick in terms of um, uh, people studying it now. But at the moment, that's the case. Is there anything behind that particularly? Is there anything we can do uh, to it reverse that decline a little bit at the, at the, the tertiary level? It's, it's an interesting one because it's, it's been a prime concern for the whole time that I've been at university. If you think back, the role that I first had was actually partly funded by the Royal Society of Chemistry and came about because in the early 2000s, several chemistry departments closed down. So Exeter closed its chemistry department. King's College London closed its chemistry department, reopened it actually a few years ago, but had closed it. And actually it was when Sussex was threatened with closure that uh, the government started taking notice and put some money in and, and then the RSC created this role. But of course, the reason universities were going to close uh, departments was because there weren't enough students. There was then an increase. Now, we would like to say, oh, look, this was because of that chemistry for our future programme and, and all these other school teacher fellows, because it wasn't just me. There were about 11 or 12 other school teacher fellows. A very high, pro high profile one you might know is Christy Turner, and she should be someone else you should speak to for a podcast. She's up at Manchester and still teaches in a school as well as being based at the university. And uh, another good friend and colleague, Jackie Robson at Durham. So there were a few of us. There was a, an uptick. If you look from sort of 2010 to 2015, numbers went up and then they started declining again. Um, and of course, we'd like to say, well, that's because they pulled the funding and stopped having school teacher fellows. Now, we can't say there is a direct correlation there, but I'm sure that we did have an impact. And actually having people to get out there and advocate for chemistry. And, you know, we all are involved in supporting teachers. I do lots of outreach work still. I've spoken to about 1,200 year 12 so far this year, which is what, about 2% of the total. It's not that many, but it's probably more than I would have spoken to if I was doing it in person. I've done it all online. We've got new opportunities now. So I think what I found going back to teaching in school, to get kids interested in chemistry, they needed to see how it related to their lives. I've read a lot of research since then that, that says that's a key factor, actually, is seeing the relevance, seeing why it's important to you. So that that's important. 
if you have non-specialists teaching chemistry in school, that's much harder to do. When I was teaching physics, I'm sure I didn't do a very good job of, of selling physics to my students. And how could you expect a non-chemist to do that? Although, to be fair, you did a great job of it. And I know that from having spoken to sick formers. And I believe you didn't do a chemistry degree yourself. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Yes. But you were a good advocate for chemistry. So, you know, good on you. So I'm not saying that that's the case for all specialist te- uh, non-specialist teachers, but it is a factor. Um, I think what we need to try to do is, well, careers awareness awareness is another issue. Um, Actually, lots of big pharma in the UK has closed down or or left. So Pfizer, for example, despite the fact that Viagra was discovered in the UK and was probably their biggest money spinner for decades, they closed most of their operation in the UK about 10 years ago. So those kinds of stories don't actually help us to recruit people to chemistry. If parents have any awareness of the chemical industry in this country, they probably think it's in decline. Um, but actually, there's lots, lots of small and medium um, enterprise enterprises that require chemists. There are plenty of jobs for chemists out there. And a chemistry degree develops so many skills. The chemists are in demand. You, you don't come across many unemployed chemistry graduates because they'll get snapped up. 40% of my cohort became accountants back at Bristol. And most of those probably earned more money uh, so far in their careers than I'll earn in my whole lifetime, right? Uh, obviously, it's not all about money, but you know there are plenty of jobs for people with chemistry degrees. So raising the awareness of the careers element, I think, would make a difference. Making sure the parents are aware, because parents are a big factor in what subject their kids choose for a degree. Uh, but making sure the teachers are able to be our advocates, because who else is going to convince a kid that chemistry is a subject for them? Who, who are going to be their role models? It's going to be their chemistry teachers. And one thing we do know, if you speak to undergraduates and ask them, why did you choose chemistry? The majority of them will say because they had an inspirational chemistry teacher or they had a great chemistry teacher or you know, the teacher is a big factor in that. Um, so John Holman, who's been a high profile uh, chemist, he was president of the Royal Society of Chemistry fairly recently. Uh, he used to ask his students every year at York, what was the reason why you studied a chemistry degree? And, and, and the teacher came out on top virtually every year. So, yeah, I think just raising awareness of what chemistry can do for you and how chemistry can improve your life and everybody else's lives and enrich so many things. You know, I'm such a passionate advocate for it. I could spend the whole day talking about it. Um, so, you know, I, would just, I just want to get out of there and share my own enthusiasm. Yeah, it's funny you say kind of uh, those alternative careers. I was thinking in a funny way, law is quite um, analogous to chemistry in some ways of, of, of rules and exceptions and, 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 and uh, counter ideas uh, because, you know, there's lots of different models of the world and chemistry is all about using models to, to describe what is going on in, you know, in matter changes. So definitely I think it's a, a degree that can uh, prepare you for skills in lots of different lots of different areas and obviously it's got the mathematical challenges as well which which is also you know uh, much much in demand now i know that you particularly you you're, you know you're quite a prolific person um david in terms of your output um i would just like to know really uh, if anyone wants to kind of follow you and see what you're up to um where they can do that so uh where, you know where do you write articles do you, do you have a twitter account um where can we find you online? Is there any particular places you would direct us to? Well, um, it's nice of you to describe me as prolific. Uh, <laughs> so I, 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 there are plenty of unwritten papers sitting in my uh, computer filing system here, I have to say. But yeah, I, I have a column in every issue of Education in Chemistry where I, I take actually someone else's work 
uh, look at a recent piece of education research and then write a short summary of the research, but then write some tips for teachers about how they can incorporate that in their practice, which is a great thing for me to do because it's a way for me to stay current and for me to find ideas for my teaching. So I do really enjoy doing that. Um, and you know, if you if you follow Education in Chemistry on Twitter, you will see that they will they always tweet out about those. And actually, my colleague, uh, Dr. Fraser Scott, um, now I'm not sure if he's moved now. He was at Strathclyde. I'm not sure if he's still there. But anyway, he, he also writes another column pretty much the same. So it's worth reading his one too, not just my one. Um, I, you know, I've got a manuscript at the moment that's bouncing back and forth with the Journal of Chemical Education, which is about that evaluation of lectures that I was talking about. But if that doesn't get published there, I'll, I'll put it into another journal. I've had quite a few papers in a, in a journal called New Directions in the Teaching of Physical Sciences, <clears throat> which some people turn their nose up at because they say, oh, well, that's not a very prestigious journal. I think it's free to access and people read it. So, you know, if you're interested, you take a look at some of my stuff there. Um, but really, actually, I, I, I do have a new PhD student starting soon. So in a few years time, she's only going to be working part time. So this is going to be a seven year project. And actually, what we're going to be looking at is just tackling that issue we've been talking about, about inspiring the next generation. We're not quite sure what she's going to do yet. But one of the things we're going to try to do is create some resources for teachers that they can use to try and hook their kids into the chemistry, particularly think about the difficult topics like electrochemistry, um, kinetics, catalysts, things that actually we have research strengths in at Southampton. So we're going to try and create some narratives around the, that research to show how it can change the world. Give you an example, right? How many kids do you think have got a mobile phone that has such a terrible battery life, they've got to keep plugging it in at school when the teacher's not looking? probably 50% of them, right? I've been there myself. 99% probably. <laughs> yep. Well, so some, a company, a spin-out company from Southampton Chemistry, um, they have created some new types of battery which can go through 3,000 charge cycles before showing any sign of degradation. Now, it's going to be a few years before they're available, but you know that's going to be a pretty interesting hook. So we've got to try and create the resource that the teacher can use to hook the kid in using this narrative based around our research. So the PhD student is going to be looking at that and trying to find a way of monitoring the impact. Um, so we'll certainly be looking to collaborate with teachers on this. We've got a few teachers locally we're already working with. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I run an annual teachers conference, which is open to everybody. We're running it online now. That's another benefit from the pandemic. Um, actually, it's running on July the 1st. I know that this podcast won't go out in time for that. Uh, but I've looked at the people that have registered. We've got people from Cornwall, the northeast of England, Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales, people that would never come to Southampton. Um, so, you know, if, if teachers look out for that, we'll be running it every year. Um, it's free to come along to that. Um, so come along and see what we're doing. I guess it's not about me sharing what I'm doing. I like to build communities and bring people together and find other people that are doing good stuff and give them a platform from which they can share it with others. That's that's what I like to do. I certainly wouldn't like to claim that I'm someone who's pushing back the boundaries of education. I don't really feel that I am. But what I am good at, I think, is breaking down the barriers to sharing good practice. And that's more what I'd like to be thought of as doing. Well, it sounds very important work um, and I wish you the best of luck with it. I've really enjoyed here, uh, talking to you today, David, and hearing your view from the lab. Thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Andy. Here we are at the end of another View from the Lab episode. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David. He continues to ensure the transition from A-level to degree level is as smooth as possible down at the University of Southampton. 
Make sure you follow his future work in the spaces he mentions earlier in the episode. Do you have a link to science education and want to share your story on the podcast? Please get in touch and email me at andy.woods at pearson.com so we can hear your view from the lab. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you on the next one.